Before we begin this month's episode, an important word from the National Domestic Violence Hotline. At the start of a new relationship, it's not always easy to tell if later it will become abusive. In fact, many abusive people appear like ideal partners in the early stages of a relationship. Possessive and controlling behaviors don't always appear immediately, and they might emerge and intensify as the relationship grows. Every relationship is different, and domestic violence doesn't always look the same. One feature shared by most abusive relationships is that the abusive partner tries to establish or gain power and control through many different methods at different moments. If any of this sounds familiar to you and your relationship, there are resources available. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. You can also text the word START to 88788. The same organization also operates the Strong Hearts Native Helpline, which is a project specific to the Native population. Advocates are available 24-7 by texting or calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or 1-844-762-8483 or via online chat at strongheartshelpline.org. There are three things you can do with your life. You can waste it, you can spend it, or you can invest it. The best use of your life is to invest it in something that will last longer than your time on Earth. Rick Warren Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, the story of one woman's emotional avalanche in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And now, years later in its telling, lessons for everyone listening about the nature of time and predation. Why do people get married? Love comes to mind first, right? Which is ironic because love is infamously indescribable, despite the efforts of countless ballads and writings. So many have tried to describe the nature of love. Really, everybody has, in a way. The feeling of love, its place in our lives, in humanity, in society, why it is that we need it, what it is that it is. I don't know if any of love's descriptors are right. Or maybe they all are. You didn't ask, but my favorite proclamation about the nature of love comes from Corinthians. You know, love is patient, love is kind, and so on. The Bible, among everything else that it is and is not, 
is occasionally masterfully written. And Corinthians chapter 13, those verses 4 through 8 are that. How many marriages have started with those words? What is love? Yeah, no, I'm not going there, except to say that it does exist. And this I will say, whether or not you agree, love is not the reason that people get married. It is among the reasons, usually, and it probably should be. Love, whatever it is, factors in. Some people need it to be the foundation of a marriage, love. Some people need it merely to be present. Some probably don't need it at all in their marriage. But this planet we live on rotates on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour, hurtling through space. We inhabitants of this planet are flawed. And so love alone will not hold you together always. Although I hope it does for you when you need it to. No, people don't get married because of love. They get married for no less important, but far less idealistic reasons. One reason, security. Financial security, emotional security, sexual security, every type of security for which it is possible for a person to provide another. That's why people get married. That's why they make the agreement between one another in sickness and health forever and so on. It's for a safety in what has always been for us an unsafe world to live. And this agreement between these two people necessitates trust and produces trust, thus also producing the only weapon that this security, this agreement, is vulnerable to, betrayal of that trust. That betrayal manifests itself in the willing full taking of that security. There are many ways to do that. Almost all of them require intent. Occasionally, but also too often, the security of one of the people in the marriage comes from the deprivation of the other's security. And that situation is universally dangerous. The only unknown is how dangerous. And so we meet two married people. They've been together for several years. They've been through a lot together. Career changes, relocations, fights, reconciliations, children. And if you really were to meet them, she is who you would have been drawn to. 40-year-old Robin Muniz spent her time on this earth trying to help others. She was talented and driven and compassionate. Robin sang in a local Cheyenne, Wyoming band called Blue Mountain, her husband, Dave, though, rarely ever went to her performances. Robin was a social butterfly. She worked as a policy analyst for the state of Wyoming's health department, with a focus on the developmentally disabled. Her project of the moment was helping to craft a new state waiver program, allowing some of Wyoming's disabled population additional funding over and above what they were entitled to federally. This was her passion at the moment, and Dave, he had passions, but he preferred to keep his own company. When it came to other people, he preferred to be outside. Opposites attract, as it was with David and Robin, but these two drifted further apart with time. Robin had tried, made efforts, especially recently, since their love had stumbled into rocky territory and they both knew it. She tried to share in Dave's interests. Robin tried big game hunting, something her husband had always kept on his bucket list, but something Robin herself never would have done on her own. In the end, though, they were just different, too different to allow for the survival of that agreement between them. And in 2007, Robin decided that she would move out. She'd packed her things and left their modest split-level home on the west side of Cheyenne. Divorce was the next step, 
a decision that Robin had already voiced to her husband. Maybe even as recently as then, some 15 years ago now, what Robin was experiencing in her marriage at that point would probably not have been labeled as domestic violence. Because there isn't any public evidence that Dave was physically abusive or verbally abusive toward Robin, she wore no bruises, she had no hushed horror stories to tell her friends about the awful things her husband would say to her at home at night. The only cross feelings that Robin expressed about her husband to friends, or even just acquaintances, is that her husband simply wasn't around that much, even when he was. She felt emotionally abandoned, with essentially a roommate for a husband to help raise the couple's four children. It's possible, probably likely, then, that Robin herself would not have called herself a victim of domestic violence. She wouldn't have thought of herself in those terms. Marriages fail. People evolve over time. Sometimes those evolutions bring two people together in lifelong relationships, and sometimes the effect is the opposite. But the sad reality of Robin Muniz's marriage is now tragically evident, because as experts on the subject increasingly say now, Domestic violence isn't about physical or verbal abuse. Those things are its most severe manifestations. But domestic violence is much more simply about control and the taking of security. David Muniz was not a violent man. He was born in Montana, and so it was true he enjoyed solitude. He loved the outdoors, being brought up in the rural west, the solitude, but he'd never hurt anyone, not in the way you're thinking. He could, if he wanted to. He was trained to do exactly that. By 2007, David Muniz had worked with the Wyoming National Guard for five years. He'd recently been promoted to second lieutenant. Prior to that, Dave had served for a time in the U.S. Army, stationed in Kentucky, and he'd made many friends in the Army, probably his best friends. Among his other skills, David had taken sniper training as part of his work for the Guard and in the Army. He'd graduated Fort Benning's Sniper School in 2001. He had not taken his wife's recent decision to separate and eventually divorce well. There was something to Dave about that concept of divorce, the finality of a relationship, his relationship, his marriage. such a legal form. It seemed to erase all remaining hope. Divorce was a piece of paper, but what it represented is the stifling of what was once to be an eternal flame. Till death do we part, she had said. That piece of paper would mean to David that this wasn't another of their many arguments. This was final. There would be no recovery after this for them. It's an emotionally powerless moment for David Muniz. And some of us aren't capable, aren't equipped to feel emotional powerlessness. David knew this was impossible. It would not be. Robin would not leave him any more than the sun wouldn't rise the next morning. And yet she had persisted in trying of late. First, she said she would move out, and she did. Whatever it was that Robin was going through, and at this point, he honestly didn't care any more than he understood, whatever that might be. But it would blow over, and it hadn't. And then she'd made it clear that divorce was coming next. That thing, so final, that's when the clock had started. His relationship with his wife was now finite and on its way to being over. Eventually, that clock would tick down to zero, because this is what clocks do. And zero, for David Muniz, was impossible. The phone calls had started soon after she moved out, and they had probably unconsciously increased in frequency in the following days. 
He was calling her more and more often without even realizing it. Because it didn't seem inappropriate to David, given the circumstances, he was calling his still wife from their phone in their house. How often would he call her? However often it took to bring her back to her senses, he would call. The phone calls weren't threatening because they weren't violent. He hadn't threatened Robin. He had no desire to hurt his wife. Robin had asked him a few times on those calls to stop harassing her, harassing his own wife. He was trying to save the marriage, save us, he thought. Occasionally, she would get fed up and hang up on him. That's not something that happens to David Muniz, so he would call back, and she would usually answer again. One time, though, a man answered instead. And that shook David immediately, filled him with an amazing number of questions in a moment. The man identified himself as a Cheyenne police officer. And then Dave's brain stopped. He hadn't been expecting that. She'd called the police. Here he was, the only person in the world still trying to save his family. From her, really. And she calls the cops on him. The officer startled David. That tone of authority he'd heard his entire adult life in the military. And immediately, his mannerism snapped into place. His dispositions were calm and level and sane. David was cordial, even polite with the officer. And when the cop said to David, Listen, man, you can't do this. You, you just can't. He was agreeable, and he was even friendly. The officer hung up with David, logged the call, and moved on to the rest of the criminality Cheyenne would have to offer on his shift that night, while David held the phone to his ear for several moments, listening to a deadline. He contemplated redialing, but thought better of it. She had cut him off. She'd used another man to cut him off. She'd kicked him out of her life, out of her bed. She'd removed him from his children. And now his only means of contacting her was also gone. The clock kept ticking, as clocks do, down to zero. There's something about a stage when you're on it that makes you think you're invincible. And Robin could sing pretty much anything. Blues, country, rock. She had an amazing voice. She could pull off anything authentically. Saturday night, July 14th, 2007, Robin was on stage with a band she played with at the Old Chicago Restaurant in Cheyenne. Now, the stage was a humble one. It was just an area of the floor in the back of the restaurant, normally occupied by a couple of pool tables. But a stage is a stage. And the band was playing well that night. The set had gone well. Everybody in the crowd seemed to be enjoying themselves, which is what it's all about. And by that first hour the following day, after midnight, spirits were high and flowing. Robin Muniz, to say the least, had a lot on her mind in those recent weeks. She'd rid herself of David. Work kept her busy, as usual. Her community and personal projects, those hobbies, as David had sneeringly called them, were the only thing that took her mind off the heavy weight that she really hadn't allowed herself to face yet. She knew she needed her husband out of her life. That part of her life she wanted to be born anew. And she had taken those steps of leaving. Not without a great amount of forethought, either. Her family and her close friends had been very supportive of this decision, and that helped a lot. But it's a hard and scary thing. There is no preparing for such an abrupt personal change after so long and so deep, no matter how planned and thought out. She thought of her children, she thought of herself, usually, but not on this night. This night had been good, and this moment was good. And it was even better as she realized that her recent decision, her bravery, really, would allow so many more moments just like this one 
in the years to come. But there would not be. There had been just one single gunshot. As is often the case, most people who heard it didn't know what it was at first. Most of our predispositions of what a gunshot is going to sound like come from television or movies or our own imagination. Inside the old Chicago, most people hadn't heard anything resembling a gunshot, actually. The shattered glass of the back door was the first sign that anything was amiss. The shot hadn't been fired from within, but from without and from a distance. And when Robin fell on stage, it would have been clear that something was terribly wrong then. Robin had been in the middle of a song when she had been shot in the back of the head. She would have been dead before she hit the ground. Her moments were gone. Police initially suspected a single bullet had been fired from a parking lot or possibly an open field behind the restaurant. The gun that had been used wasn't immediately identifiable. That wouldn't be possible until the ballistic examination had been done on the bullet that was taken from the door frame of the restaurant, but investigators stated the shot must have come from a high-powered rifle. Needless to say, her estranged husband, with his sharpshooter training, was the first person that police wanted to talk to, and all the more so when they couldn't locate him. David's family and friends, some of whom had spoken to him recently, told police investigators that David Muniz had been pretty down over his failing marriage, but that he could not have shot his wife because of it, in their experience with David. But police had their own experience and growing suspicions. They widened their search for Muniz, and it didn't take long to realize the situation. They widened their search for Muniz and then went public. David Muniz, they said, had the training and experience not only to have shot his wife that night as she performed on stage in the restaurant, but also after may have fled into the impossibly large Wyoming backcountry. They warned anybody who might have occasion to possibly encounter David Muniz in those following days to know what to look for and to not approach him or address him under any circumstances. David Muniz, police believed, was not considered to be armed and dangerous. They thought he was armed, and they knew he was dangerous. U.S. military-trained snipers are the best in the world. They are extraordinary shots. But the art of being a sniper is not just shooting from a distance. Military snipers are trained to lie in wait for hours, sometimes days, carry out their exceptionally dangerous task, and then successfully evade capture by the enemy. David Muniz possessed not only those skills, but had countless wilderness hours to his name. When not in the military, he had spent his life in the natural beauty of places like Montana and Wyoming. A sniper is trained like no other soldier to not only eliminate the enemy, but then escape unharmed and undetected. But somewhere along the way, that same training that had made David Muniz such a proficient murderer had also been warped and twisted and mangled into a deranged version of the sniper he'd once been. Because snipers don't kill criminals. They don't kill bad guys, even. That's not the way they think of it. They don't avenge. They don't take retribution. A sniper's training is based on the premise, the indoctrination, actually, that what they do saves lives. Snipers do not see themselves as killers. They are protectors. So thoroughly is this morality instilled in snipers through their training that it's extremely rare for a trained military sniper to kill a civilian in a circumstance like what Cheyenne police believed happened between David and Robin Muniz. Obviously, something had broken. Police searching for the fugitive sniper were in an obviously very dangerous situation. The kind of gun that was used to kill Robin Muniz in the hands of a trained sniper is capable of hitting a small target from a half a mile away. 
The U.S. military gave Cheyenne and state officials a profile of sorts of this suspect they were searching for. Experts told police that if this man wanted to, he could evade capture for weeks or months. They said he would not actively pursue a shootout with police. His top priority would be to evade and elude. But they also said that if they cornered this individual, if he had no place else to go, police should go forth with extraordinary caution. He would be at his most dangerous when surrounded. They also predicted that he might kill himself. As dissociated from his military training as it would appear that Muniz had become, military experts said he would likely no longer consider himself a soldier. He would have felt as though he strayed from the mission of military service. He would realize that he'd left behind the nobility that comes with protecting. Regardless of almost any mental state he was in, he would have known that he had betrayed his oath, a sacred oath. In short, the consultants told Cheyenne police he would have very little to live for anymore, especially, ironically, with his wife dead. Police began their search using dogs, Black Hawk helicopters, and 70 law enforcement personnel, which lasted for four days, until David was found. There had been a sighting of David Muniz. The media coverage had paid off. A man on horseback in rural Albany County immediately called the local sheriff. Fortunately, he knew who he had seen. As he was on the phone with a dispatcher, he heard a gunshot. Another single shot. David Muniz, 36, was alive when the SWAT team encountered him. But he died soon after from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest. Days earlier, he had abandoned his pickup truck eight miles away for a camper trailer where the witness spotted him. He was wearing full fatigues and army-issued boots. Police found left behind a six-page note addressed to everyone, quote-unquote. It was not a confession, police said, but it came as close to admission that David Muniz had shot and killed his wife the weekend before as it could otherwise have come. The note was never released by police. David had also written personal notes to each of his children, some of them on cardboard boxes and paper plates in the family's home. About Robin, he wrote simply, She was the love of my life. He ominously left what little he had after Robin took everything, as he wrote, to his children and other family members. Police determined that this handwritten last will and testament was created earlier on that same day that he shot his wife. The rifle apparently used in the restaurant shooting was found by police abandoned with his truck. Their suspect was now dead. But regardless, six law enforcement agencies were involved in the next days in a search for evidence in those vast areas surrounding the truck and that trailer where David had been holed up for days. At the start of the search, that same area had been higher on the list of possible search areas for law enforcement, as David Muniz was known to have enjoyed hunting nearby in the past. Robin Muniz had done her best to make her marriage work. She was, in life, least of all a failure. She had supported her husband's military career in Kentucky, the hobbies and passions of his that she didn't always share. And after Robin's death, she was well-remembered not just in Wyoming, but down south as well, where her family was from, and where David had served in the Army. She was remembered by the disabled teenagers in Kentucky and other young people around the military base she'd helped to teach and guide through their lives. She was remembered by countless that she impacted in Wyoming and elsewhere. In her 40 years, she helped more than most. The young, the elderly, anyone she could when it came down to it. She was buried near her family in Tennessee. In Cheyenne, the various bands that Robin had been a member of joined together following her death to hold a benefit concert in her honor. 
and that concert took place the following year and the year after that. Robin's friends were left to wonder, well, so many things, the why, of course, and whether or not there was something that anyone could have done to prevent her death. Robin's family, breathtakingly, magnanimously, spoke of David. They spoke of him in high regard, even after killing their Robin. It hadn't always been bad, they wanted people to know. He had been a good guy, once. There is time in every day to live the rest of our lives as Robin Muniz did. And there is, within all of us, each, the capacity to impact the world so well as she did. If any part of this story sounds familiar to you, that can be a very overwhelming realization. There are 24 local resources all over the state of Wyoming, and there are similar resources in every state. The information provided at the beginning of this episode and in the show notes would lead you to a confidential, non-judgmental hotline. A reminder to provide for those you love the security they require to change others' lives for the better while they're here. Because that's all that matters when we're gone. Sources for this episode include reporting from the Casper Star Tribune by Mead Groover, Joshua Wolfson, Joe Morgan, and others, as well as the Associated Press. Financial supporters through Patreon now have access to two exclusive episodes just released this month, so if you're able to do so, that extra content is waiting for you at patreon.com slash Podcast. with more to come. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can interact with me on Twitter at Wyoming Podcast or by email, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. That is our story for this month. For everyone at county10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Mm-hmm.